This is my wife, Cindy. We've been married for a long time, and uh, she can share a little bit more about that. She's saying, give me my notes. I'm sorry. Here you go, sweetheart. And uh, we're, just, we're just honored to be here this morning. We, uh, we actually, when we moved six years ago to the area, we live in Salem, we drove up here for two years and went to church and um, really enjoyed it a lot. Um, but then after two years, I'm kind of like, this is a really long way to drive to church. And uh, so we, we made a move down t- closer to where we live at. Um, we have, we've been married, like he said, 33 years. We have three adult daughters, one son-in-law, thank goodness. And um, Looking and for two more. We're looking for two Just more. If 24, 29, tall, beautiful girls. Yeah. Just if, if there's anyone. Um, yeah. I'm sure they would be excited to know that he said that. Um, <laughs> we have two grandchildren. So having, you know, had three girls in our house all the time, I am proud to announce that we do have a grandson. He is six, and he is the joy of my life because it's just really fun to have a boy around for a change. And uh, anyway, it's just great to be here this morning. It is. It's an honor to be here. When uh, Pastor asked if I would share or we would share our story as we get into the story, you'll see that it's not the easiest thing, honestly, for us to share. And it's, and it's not even something that I'm proud of or proud of in terms of my life or in terms of what I've gone through. I am very proud, however, of a God who is amazing God. He's a God who forgives. He's a God of second chances. And if you're wondering about that this morning, you need not wonder. He is a God that always goes above and beyond anything we could imagine. We pastored for 15 years, Pastor mentioned in Madras. Anybody know where Madras is? It's a little ugly town on the way to Bend. When you go over that way, it's the first town you hit. First uh, place to eat, though, once you get past government camp. So we went over there in 1992. Cindy was raised in Bend, and uh, I was uh, raised in Arizona, and we met in Bible college. And when she was raised in Bend, she, she told me the story later. She said it was always Bend, definitely, if you were looking for a place to live. Redmond, maybe. Madras, never. Well, we went to Madras, and we were there for 15 years. I, I love the outdoors. I love everything about the outdoors. How many of you enjoy fishing? Anybody in here like fishing? We've got a few fishermen. You're going to have to forgive me because I have to speak in a language that I understand, and one language that I understand is fishing. In fact, a week from this, uh, this morning, Cindy and I will be suffering for Jesus on the Kenai River in Alaska. So pray for us if you think about us. Uh, I'm not sure we'll think about you, but if I do, we'll pray for you as well, okay? But we love to fish. And there was a certain river that I like to fish. It's the Deschutes River below Lake Billy Chinook, those of you who know the area. And I love to fish for steelhead. And one, if, if you'll allow me just to tell a story for a minute, because it'll tie in with what I, I think I want to share. It was a November morning, and uh, I was down there by myself, which was a miracle, and I was getting ready to fish, and and it's just this cool memory, and I remember getting ready that morning, and I took all my gear, and I'm excited, and those of you that are fishermen, you understand this. I get out that morning, it's very cold, it's in the mid-20s, it's it's mid-November, and uh, there's this little bit of fog rising up off from the water, and I get my gear, I slip on my neoprene waders, there's not a single person down there but me in the canyon. It's barely after, after daylight. And I remember grabbing uh, my pole. I, I put everything together. I checked the drag on my, on my reel. And I grabbed my black blue fox, which is a very good uh, lure down there for the steelhead. 
And I remember wading out into the water and I flipped my first cast out and you're full of anticipation and you go right above the rapids and you come down and of course those of you that fish steelhead, you know, usually you're going to get a strike at the bottom of the, of the drift and I let it go through and nothing. And I did that a few more times and I have to be honest, I was enjoying the moment. Whether I was catching anything or not, it was just a pristine amazing morning. Now it was cold, so after every cast, I had to dip my line back in the water and get the ice out of the eyes, and, and then I would, uh, I would go on. And I remember after I'm not sure how many casts, on one of the casts, boom, here it comes around, and bam, I've got a fish on. And I, you know, I recognized that. It was just, all of a sudden, it's tight. I have light gear intentionally because I like to fight the fish. And I remember, I remember thinking, man, I've got it. So here I'm determined not to let the fish go, or let him get away, and of course the fish is determined if any way possible they're going to get off the line. And so the fight begins, and those of you that are fishermen, you know that, that that's, the, that's the moment that you enjoy. And I remember all of a sudden the fish come up out of the water, and I through the little bit of a fog I could see that it was a pretty decent fish, comes out of the water and you keep the line tight, and four or five or six times more before I would land the fish, he would do the same thing. And, of course, they're flailing, and they're trying to throw the line, uh, the hook out of their mouth, and this lure has now got a hold of them. And I remember thinking that, man, I hope I don't lose this fish. And I didn't. After a few minutes, I actually landed the fish, and I have to be honest with you, I, I, I did, at that point, you know, you don't want anybody to be around when you go fishing. But if you get a good fish and you have a good fight, then you look around to see if anybody saw it, because you're kind of hoping they did. And I remember looking around, and there's still no one on the river. It's just me. I look at the fish, and probably... Not verbally, but I, I kind of thanked the fish. I let the fish go, and I thought, well, we'll catch you on another day. And Because I enjoyed the moment. I enjoyed the moment. A few years later, I was preparing to speak uh, to a group of men at a men's conference. And as I was in preparation for that, contemplating whether I should share about a defining moment in my life or not, the Lord brought this story back to my mind. And I remember thinking, but I, I want to share with the men that would be there Cindy and I many times have had the privilege of sharing with couples, and we want to share about a defining moment in our life. Again, not because I'm so proud of that moment, but because I'm proud of what God has done beyond that, and I'm proud about how God works things out. The Lord brought a verse to my mind, and I'm going to ask Clyde if he'd put this on the, the uh, screen here. It's a familiar verse to many of you. It's James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, and here's what it says in the NIV. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is dragged away by his own evil desire. When, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And I want to focus on the word enticed, and I'll come back to that in a few minutes. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. It's interesting that the word enticed comes from a word that actually, one of the meanings for the word entice means to be drawn away from cover. Think about that a second. Drawn away from cover. And it's, it's an old fishing term in many respects, and it describes that encounter that I had with that steelhead on that November morning on the Deschutes River. If you think about it for a second, here's a well-designed lure, in that case a black blue fox, and it's presented repeatedly until finally the fish is lured away from cover and it takes the bait only to discover that it's now caught in a deadly scenario. You can understand why they would use that term. Because those of you that fish with any kind of uh, uh, an artificial or particularly or a fly, you know that it's all about presentation. You want to mimic what, they're, what they want and you want to present it in such a way that is um, 
customized for that particular fish that you're going after. It was the late 1980s, and Cindy and I, we'd been married a number of years, and um, we had three beautiful daughters. We had purchased our first home. I was on staff, Tiffany, with my dad, who had planted a church and uh, had been there for a number of years, and now the church had grown, and they had added staff, and we had been part of that staff for about five years. This was in another state. It was in Arizona. Um, Life seemed to be good, And, and honestly, for the most part, life was good, and then one day, Going about my business as a pastor, I'm approached by a young woman who's not my wife, and she made it very obvious to me that she was available if I was interested. And I remember thinking, probably as any guy that, you know, we all deal with egos, women don't have to amen on that, we know that, but... You know, there, there's always the thought of, well, this is kind of interesting. And yet, the, the, while there was a little temptation, it really wasn't enough to lure me away. It wasn't enough for me to even say, I'm going to go there or think about it. But after many months and after repeated attempts on this, on this lady's part, I was lured away from the cover of my wife, and I was lured away from the vows that I had taken, and it wasn't very long until I committed adultery. I felt like my entire world had crashed down. And like everything was, I mean, I'd I'd ruined everything in my mind. Because of Lee's affair, all of a sudden, my identity, my world, as he said, crushed down. I, um, I didn't know if I could trust him. I didn't know if I wanted to stay with him. I didn't know if I wanted to murder him, of which I thought a few times. Then I remembered I had three girls, and if I murdered him, I'd probably go to prison, and then that wouldn't be a good story. So I chose not to do that, although I did think about hiring a hitman one time, but alas, I didn't. We didn't have any money. Praise God. I was God. broke. <laughs> but um, that was a huge defining moment in my life. I just had a lot of choices to make, but the one choice I did make was I knew I could trust God. Because my walk with God was a strong walk. And I just thought, you know what? I can do this. Every day I can do this. I would just put forth the effort and I'd say, okay, God, I make a choice. And I'd say this out loud every day. I make a choice to forgive him. I make a choice to love him and to trust him and to walk the path that you've ordained for my life. And... um, Every season of every day, I had to do that because so many times in my mind, I just kept thinking, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'd sit on the floor and I'd just go, I can't do this. And then all of a sudden, God's presence would come over me and go, you can do this. And um, so anyway, once we decided, you know, we're going to make this marriage work, we boarded up our home in Arizona. I said goodbye to all my friends. I said goodbye to my home that we still owned. And we moved and uh, went down to Phoenix area, and we were there for 10 months. And um, Lee was willing to let go of everything he knew, and I was willing to let go of everything that I knew and make the choice. You know, when you catch a fish, and that fish comes out of the water, and maybe you've never fished. Maybe you've watched Wicked Tuna on Discovery Channel. You, You know that when those fish come out of the water, I mean, they are so desperate, flailing and trying to get rid of the thing that now has trapped them 
snared them, has got them. In fact, if you watch a show like Wicked Tuna, you know that they actually will kill the animal before it comes on the boat, and there's, there's a couple reasons for that. One is, physically, it, will, it, will, it can tear up the boat and literally can, can hurt and maim the people. And one of the things that I noticed is, and, and this is something that, you know, Hollywood never depicts this. You know, when you make those kinds of choices, the flailing in your life once you're hooked doesn't just affect you, it affects everything around you. I had to go to my dad, who was also my pastor, and say, Dad, there's what I did. He was my hero. He still is. I'll fish with him next, next week. He's in Alaska. And I remember later when our girls got to about seventh grade or so, you know, we, we did a covenant ring thing with our three daughters. And I remember going and sitting down with the three of them, you know, at different times, of course, when they would get to a certain age. And I looked across the table at them and, and I said, girls, I, I want to I wanna tell you what your dad did. And you know, at that age, maybe not quite seventh grade, but a little bit before that, you're kind of still on a white horse in their mind. You know, you're, but I wanted them to know for a number of reasons. First of all, I wanted them to know because at a young age, they didn't know the details, but they knew that their life had been disrupted. And we gave up everything we had and we, you know, we left. We left. And um, I also wanted them to know because without going into a lot of detail, let me just say this. There are things in, in, in a lot of our lives and a lot of our family traits that seem to be things that are passed on. Now, my dad had never had this or this issue, but most of the McLeod men had. And without getting really super spiritual or weird on you, I, I just believe that, that often we see things in families that need to be addressed. And there needs to come a place where somebody will stand up and say, that is enough. Unfortunately, I did not do it soon enough. Unfortunately, I, I had to learn it after the fact, but I had hoped that I would get the opportunity to talk to my girls and say, girls, don't ever give in to this kind of stuff. For us, it cost our ministry. It cost the place that I was raised and we had lived 10 years. It cost the security of my wife's home. It nearly cost our marriage. When I say nearly, I mean potentially it could have. I had an amazing wife. I couldn't believe that she would love me. I couldn't believe that she would say, we're going to work this out. I think it was because of her... Uh, stubbornness, but I also think it was because of her faith in her God, that God could turn something around and do something that, that he had never done before. But what you do does affect people. The Bible says that the sins of the fathers will be visited to the third and the fourth generations. However, when God restores and forgives and sets straight, it says that the blessings of the fathers will be visited to the thousandth generation. And we have a God that's restoring God, a God that in spite of us moves us beyond what we deserve. And I'm grateful for that. You know, David was called a man after God's own heart, the only one I can find in the Bible. Interestingly enough, when that statement is made by the writer, it was after he had committed adultery and after he had murdered Uriah. Terrible acts that should from a human perspective, never be forgiven. And yet God forgave and later said, because of your heart and you're something I can, and because you have something I can work with and your willingness to let me work in your life, I see you as a man after my own heart. 
is a man after my own heart. In um, July of 1990, we then decided to move to Oregon. My family was all from Oregon, and I was coming back home, and I was really excited. And, uh, and that was, again, another defining moment in our life because I just thought, what are we going to do when we get there? Um, we just up and left without a job, without anything. And um, for a season of time, we house sat for different people in my brother's church. While they would go on vacation, we would house sit for them. And uh, we just felt very unworthy, very um, insecure, but we just decided, you know what, we're going to make the choice. We didn't know if God would ever use us again in ministry. We, just, we had no idea. And um, anyway, two years later, our um, assistant superintendent at the time called Lee, and he said, you know, Lee, he goes, there's a, a church that's been a stepping stone in a smaller community that needs some good people to pastor it. And so we went, and we were there for 15 years. And another defining moment in our lives where God just poured into us, grew us, grew our relationship, raised an amazing church, and we were able to see hundreds of people's lives transformed and changed and walking with God. And that was a huge defining moment in both of our lives because we finally felt like, all right, God, you don't give up on us. You love us. And we are called to ministry. And um, we just walked and believed and trusted God at that time and grew. Yeah. You know, God also gave us a great community of, of believers to, to go to church with. You say, well, that sounds odd. You're the pastor, I know. But it was more than that. At first, the church was extremely small. They had had a lot of struggles, and, and, but God gave us some key people. And we were not ready to publicly share. I remember going and doing a men's conference early on. This would have probably been 94. And I went down in the Medford area. Somebody asked me to come speak, and I went down. And it was a men's retreat, rather, not a conference, a retreat. And I remember speaking, and a guy at the altar came up after the service. And, you know, here's a grown guy, and, and a little bit out of character for most guys. The guy is just bawling. And I remember he stands there in the quietness of the moment with music behind us so that only the two of us could hear what was going on. And he shared this story that was very similar to mine, only it had just happened. In fact, when he had left for the retreat, things had just broke and he had told his wife. And I remember him looking me in the eye and saying, but you would never understand. And Because I had agreed and my wife and I had agreed that we wouldn't share this publicly until we were ready to share it publicly. I couldn't share it. I couldn't say, yeah, I understand, dude. Man, I know exactly what you're feeling. But I prayed for him, and I tried to give hope. It wasn't much long, longer after that that my wife said, you know, I think we can share. And we went to the leadership of our church. We went to our elders. And we said, guys and gals, here's the deal. Those were a group of people that opened their arms and helped us. And probably the majority, not the majority, but, but, but a huge amount of our healing is a direct result and should be attributed to those people. They become a covering for us. They become a strength for us. They become someone to help us. And you know, if you're going through things and if you're dealing stuff, you've got a great community of believers here. And there's more, it's more to coming to a building. This is not the church. This is a building. You're the church. And when you hang out with the church, with Jesus at the center, it changes everything. It changes everything. We accept the position, we go to the, to the big metropolis of Madras, 2,500 strong at the time. 
But I remember still being afraid and wondering if God could ever do anything, you know, in me. I, I remember thinking that. There's another verse that the Lord gave me, if we could put that on the screen, Clyde. Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And I know if you went into the Old Testament, there you would see this major prophet is talking about the, the country of Israel and talking about what God wants to do. But for me, it was something that leapt off the page. And it was something that God says, I want to do something special in your life in spite of you. We had been there for, I don't know, a year maybe or less. God was really blessing. Things were happening. We were now in two services. Things were going on. And I was by myself on a, on a Monday morning. Pastors would understand this. I was reflecting on the day before. I was actually in my prayer time. And I was walking in the little teensy building that we then had as our sanctuary. And, and uh, I still remember I was on the east wall. And I always remember the east wall because we had an air conditioner protruding out of the wall. And with my height, I had to watch it because I'd hit my head on it. And I was walking down that side. And I guess, I, I didn't say this. Honestly, if you would have asked me, I think I would have denied it. But apparently the Holy Spirit saw something in my life. And what I felt him say in my heart was this. Don't, don't get too big-headed. You know, God was blessing and things were going on. And this is what he said that took me to my knees. Literally, nobody in the room but me. And I didn't hear him with an audible voice. I've never had the privilege of doing that. I just knew it in my heart. He says, you remember the late 1980s? Yeah. That was you and this is me. Make sure you know the difference. You know, God does incredible things to those that will let him work in and through their lives. The ministry flourished we spent 15 years there in that, in that small town. We've seen God do amazing things. And we, I made sure that I tried to stay accountable to my elders, to my leaders. I never wanted to even go any direction again. And I was so afraid, to be honest with you, how I would handle that, you know, ministry, because I didn't trust me. You know, if you trust you, you need to ask somebody to help you. I mean, everything about human nature is opposite of God. And there's a, there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And there's this, there's this ongoing war. Not to be so afraid, to, but, but, to, but to have full dependence on God. And in doing that, through him, I become more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. And because of the place that we were at, I always had to just remember... For us to strengthen our marriage, I had to make a choice to never, ever hold what he did over his head. And I just made that vow that I will never, ever, in arguments and fights and anything, ever say, well, you know, you did this to me, or you did that to me, or if it was a bad time at the church, because there's bad times as pastors, um, to say, if it, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. So I had to make that choice that alongside of him, that I would roll up my sleeves, make sure that we had three healthy daughters and a healthy ministry and a healthy marriage, and to make sure that under God, this was number one in my life, and um, to make those choices. And then um, in June of 2007, we were on vacation with our kids, all of our kids, 
And um, we were gone, and we get a phone call one day from Pastor Bill Wilson, which is our superintendent here for the Assemblies of God in Oregon. And I'll let you share what he said. Yeah, he called me up, and he had recently been uh, elected to the uh, uh, superintendent's role. In fact, in May, and this was now June. And I remember... um, I remember about March, God had started doing something in our life. And I had always said, I had always said, I, I, never, I never want to do anything but pastor. And I still miss pastoring terribly. I really do. That's why I know how, how amazing it is that Pastor Stan would give me this morning. Uh, but I, but I, was, I missed that. But God was doing something. And we, we weren't looking for any kind of a position in the Oregon Ministry Network. I wasn't looking at another church. It's just one of those things that we knew God was doing something. Bill calls me up, and uh, which, by the way, was another defining moment, big time in our lives. And, uh, and, and I knew him casually. I mean, we had served on boards together. We had hung out. You know, Stan and Bill and I had, had, had served on boards. And, you know, we, I actually probably knew Stan better than I knew Bill. I didn't know him very well. I just, um, but, he, but he asked me, he said, you know, he, there's been some changes in, in the network office, and would you be interested in serving as the assistant superintendent? And I remember thinking, my goodness, I can't believe this is happening, number one. And number two, immediately I thought about what I knew about myself. And I said, Bill, before I answer that question, first of all, we would be interested. But before I, I, we finish this, you need to know there's some other things in my resume that you don't know about. And I, I shared with him basically what I just said to you. I also said, if God allows us to be in that position, we have to be in a place because we had now in our life and our ministry, we had got to a place where we shared openly about this. We taught, you know, many marriage retreats and couples retreats and those kinds of things, as well as openly sharing before our congregation. Because I believe this, once you're healed and you're beyond the sin and the pain of that sin, and you've got your life back on the right track with God's help, I think you need to use that experience to kick the enemy in the teeth any chance you get. And we had decided that. And so I said to Bill, I said, Bill, I would need to share when we had opportunities, be able to have the freedom to share publicly. And he, being my boss, would, would have the right to give me that. By the way, he, uh, he heard that I was going to be here this morning. And many of you know that he attends here when he's not out on the road. And he's in Central Oregon this morning. He sent me a text this morning and says, I'm excited to hear you're going to be at Horizon. I'll be praying for you. We have a great relationship. Bill thought about it for honestly just a matter of a split second or two, and here's what he said. I'm not looking for perfect people to be on my team. And besides, it happened a long time ago. We accepted this position, and we joined the, uh, the team in September of 2007, which, as I said, was certainly another defining moment. Both of us are so glad that we serve a God of second chances and a God that loves us because, you know, none of us deserve the grace and the mercy that God shares and bestows upon us. And um, I can tell you now, these years later, that we have got a strong marriage, a good marriage. And I also make sure that my man, I'm the only one that catches his eye. And um, because I don't want to have to murder him. Although I did learn this morning, where's Ginny? If you need to murder somebody, call Ginny Conley, and she'll hook you up on how to hide the body. <laughs> just, want, just, just so you know, call Ginny. 
So um, I'm just letting Ginny know that I don't need to call you now. I would have then. Okay, we're all good. I don't know what to say after that. Praise God, she doesn't want to murder me anymore. Anymore. You know, by the way, just a, a comment, and I've heard Cindy expound on this and teach this many times to ladies. You know, anytime there's a difficulty or hard things in your life and someone hurts you or there's hurt that requires forgiveness, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice. Had she have acted on her feelings, I might not be here. She made a choice, however. The great thing is, is down the road with God's help, often what started as a choice, void of any feelings whatsoever that supported that choice, you discover that there's a God that comes alongside of you and he adds back the feeling. He's a great God. He's a great God. There's six lessons that I've learned from my defining moments. And before I turn this back to your pastor to close, I just want you to look, and I think we'll have them on the screen. Number one, anyone can be enticed. Remember the definition of enticed. Drawn away or lured away or, you know, sucked away from cover. We can all be enticed. I at the time thought, you know, I've got this thing. I've got this. I'm okay. I can handle this on my own. That is not true. Number two, once you're hooked, your flailing hurts everyone you love. There are consequences to my actions that I'll take with me to the grave. There are pain and a little bit of insecurity, even in pre preparing this this week. My wife and I talked about this. I can never talk about this without a sting and an embarrassment and a thought of, what an idiot. But the reality of it is, I won't say for you, but people in other churches are made up of people that in and of ourselves can all be idiots. We can make poor choices. We can make poor decisions. Our world stimulates that and feeds it and endorses it and tells you it's okay. It's not. It's not. Number three, no one can afford to live an unaccountable life. You cannot afford to live an unaccountable life. Number four, there is nothing you have ever done that God can't forgive and restore. I am not condoning sin. But what I know is this. We are all sinners saved by grace. There's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. That God won't forgive. And if, and if hell has sold you a bill of goods. And said because of my past. My, my future is forfeited. That's a lie. You take that to God. And see what God will do with it. God will turn things around and give you what you don't deserve in spite of you. Because that's the kind of God he is. Number five, amazing and productive life is possible regardless of your past. And number six, and perhaps the most important and the, and the coolest part of this whole thing. I just have to say this. You know, when, I, when all of this happened, I... You know, if God would have somehow physically come down and just kicked my tail, I'd have felt like somehow I paid some penance. But it's, it, when, he, when he embraces you instead with mercy and grace, it, boy, sometimes it's awkward and it's hard. But the thing I discovered about God, regardless of what I've done, regardless of how far removed from him I feel or my circumstances say that I am, he's always just a prayer away. We sang a great song, Tiffany Lettuce, from the Lord's Prayer which was a model prayer. But prayer doesn't even have to be that elaborate. It's just simply saying, God, here I am. Here I am. We are grateful for our God. And I can honestly say this, I never want to go through what I went through again. But the value we learned 
Now, it's a lot of years later, but the values we learned, we wouldn't trade for anything. But don't go through those hard, ridiculous things before you learn the values. Ask God, and God will help you. Pastor. Let's thank the Lord for this couple. Can we do that? Their honesty. <clears throat> I, I asked them to share that. I wanted you to hear it. And let me, let me give you a couple reasons why. I don't want us to be the kind of people that shoot our wounded. Um, the church of Jesus Christ has not looked like Jesus much of the time in the history here in America. We won't forgive people when God will. We write people off when God doesn't. We carry a spirit of arrogance. Can I tell you something? I just had this thought. Any sin you've ever committed, whether before marriage, after, anywhere in between, it's all sin. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I want to, I want to thank you, uh, Lee, for your remarkable honesty. And I know that's why God's blessed you so much. And I want to tell you this. His daughters absolutely adore him. As a matter of fact, unusually so. He loves them so much and they love him so much. And, and it's just a testimony to following Jesus. Where, wherever you're at right now, just make a decision to follow Jesus with your whole heart. I like it that we can feel the sting of it so it scares us. <laughs> needs to be a holy fear about these things. But I love it that God can show his grace and his forgiveness to people.